Well, I think we all have those little pet phrases, those, those little mantras or proverbs that maybe our parents told us or we've kind of invented through life with wisdom and experience. And one of mine is this one, that there's a fine line between gutsy and stupid. And I do my best to stay on one side of that line. But a couple years ago, our staff had just an amazing week of Holy Week. We tried some new things. They put in extra hours. We saw a a record crowd and decisions on Easter. And so we wanted to just say thank you to them for their hard work. And so we we went out to lunch, and then we decided to do something that that in the moment I thought was really gutsy. And we, we brought you a little video of what that was here. Watch the screen. None of you, if you're here at Cornerstone for a while, know that. It's not a surprise. But, but what was important that day was not that we went on the giant swing. What was important that day is what we did in the order that we did it. Because we violated that line between gutsy and stupid. Because before we did that, we went out and had deep dish pizza. <laughs> now, another important piece of information is that I am lactose intolerant. And I took four dairy pills that day, hoping that the math would somehow be in my favor. And I was okay after one round on that swing. But peer pressure and pride got me in that swing a second time. And after the second time, I was done. And so I spent the whole rest of the day laid out on my couch looking a bit like this, (laughs) sipping some Canada Dry ginger ale and hoping that my stomach would relocate from my trachea down to my belly. So while I love the video, that day was a day that makes me think about the word regret because I violated that line between gutsy and stupid. I wonder in the room today, how many of you would say you have regrets? The rest of you who are texting, you can raise your hand now. (laughs) I think regret is a pretty universal human experience. But what's interesting is a few years ago, uh, some professors at Cornell released a study about our regret. And what they found, I found fascinating. What they discovered is that in the short term, our regrets are primarily my deep dish pizza plus double swing days. They're regrets of action. In the short term, our regrets are 53% regrets of action and 40% regrets of inaction. In the short term, we regret those bad decisions those moments we wish we could take back, those moments where we cross the line from gutsy to stupid. But what these Cornell researchers found that I found absolutely fascinating is that over time, the numbers go absolutely in the opposite direction. In the long term, our regrets are 84% the things of inaction and only 16% the regrets of action. Many of you know this because when you raised your hand today, the things you regret 
are not the dumb decisions you made in the past. They're the opportunities you missed that you'll never get back. Those are the things in life that the longer we live, those become the strongest. We've all got moments that we wish we could undo or do differently. We all have moments where we were young and stupid or things that we go, oh man, what was I thinking? But the things that, that last longest, the things that are hardest to get over, they're those regrets of inaction. They're those opportunities that were once in a lifetime, and now that lifetime is gone. And what do we do with that feeling? In writing about this, Matt Chandler said, if you're not careful, your want-tos are going to give way to I wish I would have's. And, and what I hope this summer has been as we've journeyed through the book of Ecclesiastes is I hope it's been a sobering moment for you. I hope it's been an opportunity for you to reflect on your life as you're experiencing it right now. To look back on the life that you've lived so far and to turn your attention to the future in light of your experience. In a room this big and with this many people watching online, there are so many things we could put in the blank of life is this. But I hope what you've discovered as we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes is I hope you've discovered the importance of living with wisdom and not just living life under the sun in this temporal world, but living life above the sun in God's world under his wisdom and following his direction. And if Solomon is good for nothing else, I hope he's woken you up and reminded you that life is vanity. It's fleeting. It's like a vapor and it's going away. And if you're not intentional about your life, then you're going to be in that category of the 84%. Spending too much of your time thinking about the opportunities that you're never going to get back. So today, as we come up to our second to last week in this series, I've titled this message, Life is an Adventure. Because it is. And we only get to live it once. But as the, the wise person famously said, if you live it right, once is enough. And so if you walked in this morning, got a bulletin, there's a place for you to take notes on your handout. And here's the big idea, I think, of the text we're going to look at today. That on my adventure... I will avoid danger and walk in the way of wisdom. On my adventure, I will avoid danger and walk in the way of wisdom. I intentionally wrote that in first person so it wouldn't just be my big idea, but so that it might be yours too. And once you fill those blanks in, I'm going to ask you to read this statement with me together as our statement that we're going to claim for this morning. So you're going to follow me on three. One, two, three. On my adventure, I will avoid danger and walk in the way of wisdom. That's what we're going to do today. You can't prevent danger from happening, but you can't avoid it. And you can't walk in the way of wisdom. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Ecclesiastes 10 and 11. If you have a physical Bible, you go to the middle and you'll hit Psalms, you'll go to the back, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We've been in this book since the beginning of June, if you're here for the first time, and you can go online and get caught up on the series. It's been an awesome ride. My Bible is just covered with scribbles and marks, and I'm hoping I can share with you all the things that I learned today. If you know the history of this book, Ecclesiastes is written by King Solomon, who at his time was known as the wisest, most wealthiest, most powerful king on earth. 
and he writes Ecclesiastes at the end of his life to share the wisdom and insight he gained throughout his life. And, and so Solomon is giving a lot of us, if you're like me, a picture of what the future is going to look like if you don't live with wisdom. And many of you this week who are on social media learned that a lot of us are not thinking about the end of our life because of this app called FaceApp. And uh, before I discovered that it was owned by the Russians, I had fun on it this week with our staff. And so I want to introduce you to Scott over here on the left in about 50 years. And then Paul, our newest staff member over here. Paul, I'm not sure you're going to last 50 more years, but there is your photo in case you do. (laughs) And then I went with our youngest staff members. This is uh, Jamie Parker and Santa Claus. If you do download the Face app, just know you're giving Russians access to all of your pictures. You'll notice I didn't put the pictures of Lindsay and Jen on there because I am a good guy. Um, And Clovis is in Zambia and signs our checks, and so I want to get paid at the end of the sermon, and so I didn't put his picture on there either. But but FaceApp is a great reminder for all of us is that we're not always going to be here and that life is shorter than we think. And many of the things that we put our effort and attention to, collagen, lotion, facials, sunscreen, eventually those all run out. And so today in Ecclesiastes 10 and 11, I'm going to share with you today four dangers to avoid. And the first danger to avoid is the danger of folly. The danger of folly. Yes, that's the root word that we get our word foolish from. And, and in chapter 10, Solomon is going to walk you through, he's going to walk us through all the different ways that folly is a danger for us. And the first one, letter A, is that he calls us to avoid the foolish path. He says, that, hey, there's a path that you can walk, and it's the path of foolishness. And he begins to unpack this in the beginning of verse 1. He says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. For those of you political junkies, if you're looking for a verse for the Republican Party, (laughs) you might take this verse to mean that, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. This was not a day where there was a right and a left political party. In the day that, that Solomon is writing, the right way was the way of God. He says in Psalm 16, David, Solomon's father, I set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. In Psalm 121, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. So what he's saying is that there is a a foolish path and there's a wise path. And in an ancient culture, the, the wise path was to the right and the foolish path was to the left. And he said, hey, a wise man, his heart inclines him to the right. Later on, Solomon says, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. This is one of those people that everybody knows is a fool, like from afar. Like when the person's not around, you talk about that person, what foolish things they're doing. He says, hey, there is the fool who's going on the road, and he lacks so much sense that everyone can see his foolishness. In verse 4, he says, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. What he's saying is that, hey, there are a couple different paths you can go in life. And if you're going to avoid the danger of folly, you ought to avoid the foolish path. And the foolish path is often crystal clear to everyone else other than the person walking it. Self-awareness is incredibly important and incredibly rare. 
And Solomon is saying, learn from those who can see what you can see and avoid the foolish path. He continues, letter B, by saying, another's folly can undercut your wisdom. So you can be the wisest person in the world, but somebody else's lack of wisdom can undercut your own. In verse 5, he says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and I have seen princes walking on the ground like slaves. Solomon didn't have a car that wasn't invented yet. But if he did, he would tell you that you can take driver's ed... You can have comprehensive insurance. You can have your radio turned down and your phone in the glove box. You can have your eyes on the road and your hands on 10 and 2. You can be going the speed limit on cruise control and staying within the lines. And you can still get in an accident. You can do all you can as it depends on you and be wise. And somebody else's folly can undercut it. What Solomon is trying to tell us is that there are limits to wisdom. There are limits to what we can control. There are limits with what we have the power to do. And when the most powerful, the most wise, the most wealthy man on earth begins to tell you that even his wealth and his power and his wisdom has limits, then shouldn't you take that to account for yourself? You can work out with all your might. You can monitor your diet down to the calorie and the gram on your macros. You can take a, a, a bio test by your tongue or your blood and study your DNA. You can have your body hacked and get on vitamins and supplements. You can do all you can, and guess what? You will die. Solomon is saying there's a limit to what your wisdom can do. And so often it's not your wisdom, it's someone else's lack of wisdom that undercuts you. He continues, letter C said, but applied at the right time, wisdom helps. So yeah, there's a limit to it. There's only so much it can do, but at the right time, applied in the right way, wisdom can help. In verse 8, he says, he who digs a pit will fall into it. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. He says, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. What he's saying here is that there's a variety of circumstances in your life that you can go through that are dangerous. If you're digging a pit, you can fall into that pit. If, if you're breaking through a wall, guess what? A serpent can jump through the wall and bite you. Like anybody needs that mental picture, you know? I hate snakes. Um, he who quarries stone can be hurt by them, and he who splits logs is in danger. He said, there's all sorts of circumstances in life where you can be injured and where you can be hurt. So you need to exercise wisdom. And so he uses this analogy of a, an iron, an iron axe. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps when it succeeds. So the, the right time to sharpen your axe is at the beginning of the day. Not at the end of the day. You know, there are those people in the world, some of them are my friends, who after I'm done with using a blunt axe remind me that I should have sharpened it at the beginning of the day. 
Her name is Danilin. We've been married for 11 years this weekend, but that's beside the point, you know? Wisdom is helpful, and it makes a difference when it's applied at the right time. And he says, if the serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. If you're going to buy a snake, it's good to buy the snake before the snake bites you. Because if the snake bites you before the sale, you're not, you're not buying it. And so what he's saying is exercise wisdom at the right time. Solomon is trying to give us advance warning about what's to come in our lives and help us to understand before what we need to know. Letter D, he says, folly destroys itself. When you're a foolish person, when you're going in the way of foolishness, that foolishness is actually self-destructive. And Solomon gives us a great picture of that in verse 12. He says, the words of a wise man win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. He says, in the beginning, he's foolish, and at the end, he's evilly mad. Everything in his life is completely destructive. In verse 14, he says, a fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. We've all been around people who the longer and longer they talk, the deeper and deeper the hole they dig. We all have people who, who just keep talking, and the longer they talk, the worse it gets, you know? Like, the more obvious it is that their foolishness and their ignorance. And there's an old proverb that says, uh, it's better to, to keep your mouth closed and make you, people know that you're a fool than open it up and prove them right, you know? So what he's saying is that the, the, the fool multiplies his words, his words consume him, and his foolishness destroys him. This is why Solomon is reminding us that true wisdom looks like humility and is an embrace of mystery. Josh gave a great message last week on mystery. If you want to know what wisdom is, it's this recognition that I don't know everything and there are so many things that I have yet to understand. This is why I love being around people when they graduate with their PhD. I love talking to them because they're, they're like an expert at that subject. And so often, the people that I meet that have PhDs, you know what they tell me about their subject of knowledge? They say, I now know how little I do know about this one thing in the world. Education has actually humbled them because it showed them the limits of what they understand. And if you are a truly wise person or you know somebody who's truly wise, they are a combination of two things. They are humble. They don't know it all. And they embrace the mystery of the things they don't understand. The fool, on the other hand, is known by arrogance and a belief in one's ability to answer all of life's questions. See, foolishness is going, hey, I know more than I know, and I, I've got it all figured out. This is why Solomon in the Proverbs says, pride comes before the fall. Pride comes before destruction. When you feel like you have all the answers, you are about to have an experience that's just going to show you how little answers you have. And Solomon is warning us, saying, don't go the way of the fool because that's the way of self-destruction. And then Solomon concludes this little section on the danger of folly by saying that wisdom blesses many. 
Wisdom blesses many. It isn't just you that is impacted by your wisdom or foolishness. It's others. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So, hey, kings have access to incredible resources, but but the foolish ones feast on it for their own good. The wise ones feast on it for strength and not for drunkenness. He says, through sloth, the roof sinks in. Through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and the wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. This is the view of the foolish. Bread is not for strength. It's just for being enjoyed. Wine isn't a sign of God's blessing. It gladdens life. And I have money, so money will answer everything. He says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in the bedroom curse the rich, for the bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is where the phrase came from, a little bird told me. And Solomon is warning us, especially those of us who have these, to be careful with your words, because you think that your words are just going to stay there. You think your words are just going to stay secret, but friends, idle words rarely stay idle. When I think about my regrets of action, so many of them are about idle words. In arrogance and pride, I spoke a word about somebody I thought they would never hear. Only they did. And it cost me influence and it cost me relationship. So Solomon is saying, hey, beware the danger of folly. He says, number two, beware the danger of worry. The danger of worry. Last week, Josh had you raise your hands. How many of you have ever wrestled with worry and the whole room get up? So I wouldn't do that again. But I think many of us can relate to the experience he describes here in chapter 11. He says, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give it a portion to seven or to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on the earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the north or to the south, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. So when your eyes are on what might happen, it paralyzes you in the moment. When you're worried about the wind or you're worried about the rain, it keeps you from doing what you're supposed to do. And so he says, as you do not know the way the spirit comes into the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So in the morning, sow your seed and at evening, withhold not your hand for you do not know which will prosper this or that or whether both alike will be good. What Solomon is saying to us is that worry is the normative universal human experience. So prepare for it. And prepare for it by doing what you can with what you know. Cast your bread upon the waters. Diversify your investments. Sow your seed. Go out to harvest. This is in stark contrast to the way I think a lot of people live. It can be set up in this mantra. Get all you can, can all you get, and then sit on the can. If you're somebody who worries, this is how you live. I'm going to get all I can. I'm going to stash all I can, and then I'm going to sit on it. 
This is the way many of you, your grandparents, your parents lived after the Great Depression, where they they literally hid their money because they were afraid the banks were going to lose it. And this is in stark contrast to the biblical model that rejects worry and calls us to trust, which instead of get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can, the words of John Wesley says, make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can, because God is in charge of all that you can and will do, and all that you can and will get, and all that you can and will give. See, the worst part is not that we all wrestle with worry. The worst part is what you will miss out on if you worry. If worry doesn't become the occasional experience, but it becomes your pervasive reality. My wife's the resident hockey fan in our house, and she's not a fan of Wayne Gretzky, but here's Wayne Gretzky's most famous quote. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And worry will keep you paralyzed when the opportunity of a lifetime comes. Because you don't know enough. You don't feel confident enough. You don't have enough details. You don't feel in control. You don't know the outcome. Friends, that's following Jesus. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have all the details. Maybe God gives you all the details for the things he calls you to do, but he doesn't do that for me. I'm not in control, and I don't know what's going to happen. And yet he still calls me to obey. See, control will always produce inaction, but trusting God leads to action. This is why worry and control are so dangerous, is that God has a bright future with purpose and plans for you, but if you have to be in control, and if you live by worry, you will never step into it. That's why that old song my grandma taught me is so true. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. The only way to be happy in Jesus is to trust and obey. Not control and worry, but trust and obey. Number three, the danger of missing it. Solomon next talks about the danger of missing it. And this is maybe the one that's most personal for some of us. In verse seven, he says, Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all of these things, God will bring you into judgment. Solomon here is speaking to both those who are getting older and those who are young. And he first speaks to those who are getting older, which is all of us. All of us are getting older. And what he says is, he says, hey, beware. If you're going to live many years, you have an opportunity to rejoice in all of those years. But remember, the days of darkness will be many. Many commentators believe what he's saying is that beware that you may actually have more bad days than good days. And that will tempt you to not celebrate the good days. You'll be tempted in life to only celebrate when you get to the promised land. But what you'll do in the meantime is you'll miss out on the road along the way. Some of you have lived long enough to realize that the greatest moments of joy and celebration 
are in the struggle. They're in the journey. Some of you, the best season in your marriage was the season when you had the least amount of money and the least amount of stuff and you had the most amount of stress, but you had each other. And now you have more money and more stuff and less joy and less of each other. He said, one day we'll celebrate when we have everything. And yet when you look back for joy, what you find it is in the midst of the nothing. He says, rejoice in all of your days. Josh challenged us last week to celebrate the everyday. Don't wait for the destination. And to the younger, he says something that I think is really interesting. He says, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. What he's saying is things like follow your heart, follow your passion, go out and give it a shot, which is so contrary to what many of us say to people who are young. We say, grow up. What, and be crabby like you, you know? (laughs) Act your age. It's so funny. All of us tend to judge people who are 20 years younger than us, you know? If you're 30, you judge people in their teens. If you're in your 20s, you judge people that are in their their single digits. If you're in your 90s, you judge people in their 70s. I mean, it's just, we're just all good at judging each other people who are younger than us. And what he's saying is, hey, you have a limited opportunity here. While you have vigor, while you have energy, while you have youth, go follow it. But remember that in all of these things, God will bring you into judgment. You're going to be accountable. A few years ago, I stumbled on a book that I don't even know how I found it, but um, it has, like few books, stayed with me with its arresting power to reset my focus. It's called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying by Bronnie Ware, who was a hospice nurse in Australia for several decades. And she found with her thousands of patients that these were their top five regrets. One, I wished I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Three, I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. Four, I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. That way they were telling this to a friend and not a hospice nurse. And five, I wish I'd let myself be happier. Psalmist says we're all, no matter what age we are, we're in danger of missing it. Because life isn't guaranteed. It's fragile and fleeting. And somebody say, well, this is just like human wisdom. Where's, Where's the Jesus part of this? Following Jesus is not a passive experience. Where you sit there after your baptism and wait for 40 years and wake up one day and you look like Jesus. It doesn't work like that. So Jesus says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians 2, as I work in you according to my will and good pleasure. If you want to become like Jesus, it's not about you earning anything, but you're going to have to show some effort. If you've never broken a sweat following Jesus, you haven't followed him very far. And what he's saying is that if you sit there passively, you're going to miss out. And then I've got a couple minutes left for my final one, number four, the danger of vexation. Oh, I love that word. Vexation. Some of you are going to learn a new vocabulary word today. In verse 10, he says, remove vexation from your heart 
and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. The word vexation is a combo word. And in this text, it means the combination of anger and bitterness. It isn't just that you're angry. It's that you're bitter that you're angry. Or you've been angry long enough for that anger to turn into bitterness. Let me give you a a picture of this. Have you ever forgotten a piece of Tupperware in your car in the summer? I did this past week. I was doing dishes one morning. My wife walked into the kitchen and she goes, what is that smell? I said, I don't know. It was my leftovers. <laughs> and it's funny when you laugh at that or you discover that thing growing, you know, in the Tupperware. It's funny when it's in the Tupperware. It's sobering when it's in your heart. Because guess what? You can throw away Tupperware and buy more. But you only get one heart. And what Solomon is saying is that many of us have vexation in our heart. We have an anger that has festered and become bitterness. I'm not sure who said this, but I found it online a few weeks ago. If you don't heal from what hurt you, you'll bleed on those who didn't cut you. And Solomon is at the end of his life, and he's saying, guys, I let vexation remain in my life for so long that now it's hard to remove. So he says, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. You know this if you've ever pulled weeds from your yard. The longer the weed has been there, the longer it takes to pull out. And for most of us, the vexation in our heart doesn't come out on the first pull because we've let it stay there for so long. And so somebody who's older and wiser than all of us is saying, hey, if there is something toxic, nasty, festering, and broken in you, don't wait longer to fix it. Because the easiest time for God to remove it is today. Yeah, the best time was a long time ago. But guess what? That time's gone. The next best time is today. And it will only get harder and harder, and harder, and harder. And as a young pastor who pastors lots of people older than me, I will tell you how many people tell me, Scott, I wish I would have gone to counseling sooner. I wish I would have worked on this sooner. I wish I would have let God in this place sooner. So where's the next place that God wants to work in your heart? What's the next place? vexation he wants to tackle because you can sing I surrender all all you want but as long as that Tupperware stays there as long as that thing remains the pain will continue and it won't just affect you it'll affect others and it'll keep you from the adventure that God has for you on the back of your hand there's some next steps I want to walk through real quick. The first one is I want to challenge you to identify the opportunities which you need to seize today. And what opportunities are only available right now? This week, my, uh, my, my seven-year-old wanted to fall asleep on me. He 
is heavy to carry to bed. Let me just tell you that. But it reminded me of when his four-year-old brother couldn't fall asleep for the first few months he was born, and he slept on me every night. And guess what? That time's already gone. There are opportunities right now in your life that are opportunities of a lifetime. And those opportunities are like the milk in your fridge. They have an expiration date. So seize them before they expire. What are those opportunities? Number two, practice surrender so you can take action in the face of worry. Practice surrender. I've told you guys in this series that I am a recovering um, self-righteous jerk. Uh, I'll show you another day that I'm also a recovering control freak. I'm a recovering a lot of things if you haven't figured it out yet. And so on a regular basis, I take a very physical posture in prayer because my control and worry keeps me from taking action. I begin my prayer with my palms facing the ground as a physical symbol of all the things I'm going to lay down. All the things I'm not in control of, all the things I don't know, all the things that I'm handing over to God. And then my prayer ends with my palms up, receiving from God the things I can't control, but I need, the things I can't anticipate, but I'm going to have to walk through, the things I don't feel like I have what it takes for it, but God's promised to give me everything I need, and I receive those things. And maybe if you're a worrier or a control freak, maybe that posture will be helpful for you this week as you practice surrender so you can take action. And then number three, I want to encourage you to confess the vexations of your heart and pray for God's healing. In, in the book of James, written by the brother of Jesus, he says, confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. Like that Tupperware in your car, it doesn't change or get healed until you confess it and acknowledge it. And some of us, sadly, have just thrown it deeper and hid it longer. And the healing's only going to come when you name it and you ask God into it. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you've given us life, that you've brought us into this adventure. God, we thank you for all of the opportunities that we've enjoyed this summer, all the, the experiences that you've given us, all the stories that we already have to tell from 2019, even though it's only halfway over. But God, we know that all of us are in danger of not walking in the way of wisdom, but walking in the danger of foolishness. We know that we're all capable of falling into any one of these things that Solomon lays out for us. And we know that's not what you want for us. So it's hard. There's lots of stuff there. There's almost an overwhelming number of things for us to think about or focus on or work on. But God, I believe that it hasn't just been me speaking today. It's been you. I believe you've been speaking to human hearts. And I believe each person who came in today with a genuine desire to hear from you has heard something, has felt prompted or convicted or guided towards an action or a step. 
And God, I know that on the other side of that is greater understanding and greater peace. So I pray that you would walk with us and guide us, that we would follow and trust you even when we don't understand. And more than anything else, God, I pray that we would surrender and give you our lives because you truly know better than we do. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.